welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Federal prosecutors are seeking the death penalty for Robert Bowers, the man charged with going on an anti-Semitic shooting spree at a Pittsburgh synagogue on Saturday, killing 11 people. U.S. Attorney Scott Brady says Bowers will be in court today to appear before a federal magistrate judge. Bowers was armed with multiple weapons. He had three Glock, 357 handguns, and an AR-15 assault rifle. Inside the synagogue, Bowers shot and killed 11 individuals and wounded two others. Joining me is Brad Moss of Mark Zaid. Brad, federal prosecutors have filed 29 charges against Bowers, and that includes 19 counts of two hate crimes, obstruction of exercise of religious beliefs resulting in death and resulting in bodily injury to a public safety officer. Tell us about the federal civil rights laws against hate crimes in the context of the charges here. Sure. So the context, the way the, uh, the Congress crafted these specific federal criminal provisions is it allows uh, the prosecutors to take what would otherwise be a, would be a state crime, a, a local domestic crime of, you know, committee of, of murder and bring it to a federal level uh, under the federal legal system and adding an additional element of proof that the government has to demonstrate that it was done for the particular and specific uh, purpose of a hate crime, of doing it not just because you didn't like the person, but because you particularly hated their race, their ethnicity, their religion, something along those lines. So it, it, it adds an additional factual burden for prosecutors, of course, but by creating this criminal provision, what Congress did was it gave the federal prosecutors the ability to bring these crimes and to keep it separate from what state laws might otherwise craft when it comes to limits on the death penalty. And that's why, obviously, it appears that the federal prosecutors are going to seek the death penalty for Mr. Bowers, even though under certain state laws, he might otherwise not have been subject to it because of moratoriums. So the ultimate panel, the ultimate decision for seeking the death penalty rests with U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and there is a process within the federal system. Would you explain the process, what prosecutors are going through now, what's being considered Sure. So they'll consider a number of factors. They'll consider the nature of the crime, obviously, and the evidence they have of it being specifically done for the purpose of murdering people based on their religion uh, and ethnicity, things along those lines. But they also then have to factor in and consider in the entirety of their analysis, the person's background, his mental health. Um, the interest of public policy, things along those lines. Because in the end, even if, you know, they, they succeed at trial and he's convicted on these counts, there's a, sep- there's a separate penalty stage. And this is where the government prosecutors will then have to convince the jury, not just that he was guilty, which they would have already concluded of these various counts, but that the nature of the offense and the factual circumstances of these murders justifies the ultimate punishment, justifies putting this person to death. And it's a very significant factual burden and that the prosecutors understandably have to uh, meet in order to impose that type of ultimate punishment. Brad, would you be surprised if federal prosecutors do not seek the death penalty here? I would be completely shocked if they don't pursue it. Not only is uh, the attorney general seems to be very much leaning towards that, not only does the president seem to be leaning towards that, um, but I think the circumstances certainly demonstrate that the government could meet its factual burden. There certainly seems to be enough evidence from this gentleman's uh, social media posts 
and his comments uh, contemporaneously to police officers when he was detained, that this was specifically done as a hate crime, not just a I'm randomly walking around to a particular building today to murder people, but he was specifically and intentionally doing it because these individuals were Jewish, and that was his particular focus. So I would be shocked if they don't pursue the death penalty. I think it's a pretty decent bet that, assuming this gentleman is convicted, that ultimately the jury would authorize the death penalty in the penalty stage. Republican Senator Marco Rubio tweeted, why is it so hard to accept that a clearly deranged man carried out deranged acts? Is insanity a defense that seems likely here, though it's rarely successful? I, I mean, certainly if the if Mr. Bowers wants to challenge this, and I have no idea what his discussions with his legal counsel are like right now, that would certainly be a path I would pursue. But I would be surprised if the psychological evaluations that would come out of that, which would be uh, certainly a part of any potential defense of insanity, would reject the idea that he didn't recognize right from wrong at the time. There's no history of mental illness that we can uh, identify here other than him being apparently a rabid racist and bigot. Uh, so simply being bigoted doesn't make you mentally ill. It just means you're bigoted. Uh, so in that context, I don't think there's an insanity or a mental health defense. And I think what the senator was referencing in particular was this debate that we're having, this societal discussion about whether the president's rhetoric is part of the problem here. I think that's going to be showing up as well in the midterms in a week. Well, the president's tweets um, this morning were about the media being responsible. The press was the enemy of the people again. But he did issue a strong statement of outrage at the shooting as an act of anti-Semitism on Saturday afternoon. My question is, we've seen his tweets and statements become part of many civil cases. Would they be part of a criminal defense in either this case or the case of the Florida man who's charged in connection with mailing pipe bombs to high-profile Democrats, including former President Barack Obama? Um, I mean, it certainly would be an, an, an innovative and inventive legal defense if they tried to argue that if the criminal defense lawyers tried to argue justification and saying that the basis for these actions was reliant upon the statements from the president. I don't think that argument would really fly. You know, people have tried that before saying, oh, I did this because of what this politician said. It's usually just way too attenuated. I think the president's exposure here and liability is more political than it would be any kind of legal aspect. He has a habit of issuing the proper statement, what you're supposed to do as the moral leader of the country. And then on Twitter, in various tweets, explaining what he really thinks through these various commentary and his various uh, hyperbolic rhetoric. That is a problem for the president going forward from a political standpoint. We don't know how this is going to play out in the election. We don't know how it's going to play out in 2020. But I think we're going to see how how the country as a society really views this type of rhetoric and if they think this is what they want to have going forward. President Trump also said that the country should, quote, stiffen up our laws with guns with the death penalty. What kind of, of law, what kind of change in law is he looking for? Yeah, so in the 90s, in the mid-90s, I think it was 1996, Congress passed a law, and I'm blanking on the particular uh, full context of it. I think it was called the AEDPA is the acronym. But it was designed to short-circuit and kind of you know, streamline the appeals process when people are uh, convicted of a crime and ultimately sentenced in the penalty stage to death. There's a lengthy appeals process. It can take years upon years for it to go through the process. And so Congress tried to streamline it a bit in the 90s. 
And they did so to an extent. There were there remains debates about whether or not that really you know, cut off people's certain legal avenues for appeal. But that seems to be what the president is referencing. He wants to limit the ability of these individuals convicted of these crimes. Thank you, Brad. We'll have to leave it there, Brad. We'll pick it up again, I'm sure, as this process continues. That's Brad Moss of Mark Zane. event at Princeton Law School earlier this month, Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan spoke about the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh and shared her thoughts about the importance of a centrist swing vote on the court. In the last really 30 years, starting with Justice O'Connor and, um, and continuing with Justice Kennedy, there has been a person who people who found the center. It seems likely that that centrist vote will be missing on the court where Kavanaugh has taken Kennedy's place. Joining me is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Greg, how certain is it that the court will shift to the right? It's pretty darn certain, June. Obviously, we haven't seen uh, Justice Kavanaugh vote in any any cases yet. Um, There's always the very small possibility of a surprise. But um, Republicans, including this White House, have gotten good at uh, appointing the type of justices who are generally going to vote the way that that they want, which means that Justice Kavanaugh will be more conservative than Justice Kennedy was. And uh, as as you alluded to at the beginning, Chief Justice John Roberts will decide how far the court goes. So some legal scholars are saying that Roberts will now be at the center of the court, and he has shown time and again that he's concerned about the perception of the court as partisan, but his votes have been consistently conservative with a few exceptions. Is he the center now? He is certainly the center in that sense, um, uh, that, that he will, is the one who will be providing a fifth vote for something very frequently. Uh, but, he's, but as Justice Kagan was suggesting in those remarks, he's, he's unlikely to be the kind of justice where you go into a case, say like we did in an abortion case when Justice Kennedy was on the court, court where you wouldn't be sure which way he was going to end up going. With, with the Chief Justice, it is more, in most cases, likely to be that we are pretty sure that he is going to reach a conservative outcome, it's more a question of how far will he go. Well, in your story, you describe Robert's history on the court and how he's helped the court to shift right, but usually in increments. Tell us about that. Yes, so we've seen this in several cases. Uh, One example has to do with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, There was a big decision uh, called Shelby County a few years ago that struck down a core part of the Voting Rights Act. Well, the court actually could have uh, reached that result a a few years earlier. They had another case uh, called Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District. Uh, But the, the court stopped short, and essentially what they said was, hey, there's a good chance we're going to strike down this provision of the law, but we're going to give Congress a chance to change the law first. Congress didn't act, and then the court went further. So uh, it's the kind of decision that that is it's an incremental decision. Uh, may ultimately reach the same spot that some of the hardcore conservatives want, but the way Chief Justice Roberts seems to like to operate is doing it in a, doing something in a couple steps so that it doesn't seem like quite as big of a shock when you get to the the ultimate point. But there are times when he doesn't take that step. 
There are times, yes. Uh, the, the biggest example is probably in the affirmative action context. Uh, he uh, famously wrote in a case uh, involving uh, uh, high school and, and secondary and uh, middle school uh, integration. He wrote that the way to to stop to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. In other words, uh, we need to be colorblind here and not uh, assign students to schools based on uh, their race. And uh, one would imagine that would apply in the the college context as well. In the area of race, he does seem to be more willing to go a bit further and a a bit more boldly. So he has certain powers as the chief, and there's no longer the swing vote of Justice Kennedy. How much power does he have beyond that of the other justices to shape what cases the court takes and how they're decided? He really doesn't have much power, at least uh, in terms of his formal uh, powers. They all get one vote when it comes to, to what take, the cases to take. It takes four justices to agree to, agree to hear a case. Um, his power is going to come in part by the fact that he is that, that middle justice whose fifth vote uh, the conservatives will need if we get to a case where they're going to overturn or think about overturning Roe v. Wade, for example. Uh, the conservatives uh, may well think we have four votes to do that, but we don't want to take up a case that considers it until we know that we have uh, the Chief Justice with us. So uh, just by by virtue of his position as the potential fifth vote, he's going to have a lot of power. So, Greg, what areas are there this term where we might be seeing liberal conservative splits, those 5-4 decisions? Yes. So far, it's interesting. We have very few, and and the court just in the last few days has sort of ducked a couple more cases, very few really big hot-button issues. But there are a few things in the pipeline that are going to be hard for the court to avoid. So there's another case, an appeal pending involving partisan gerrymandering. This is a case out of North Carolina. Um, uh, For for boring technical reasons, it's going to be hard for the court not to take up that case. And when they do, there's probably a very good chance they'll say, you can't challenge a, a a voting map as being uh, so partisan it violates the Constitution. Uh, there's a percolating case involving uh, President Trump's effort to rescind the DACA program for de- of deferring deportation for some young immigrants. Uh, if uh, lower courts go against the president on that, it's going to be very hard for the Supreme Court to say, no, we don't want to take this case. And those are the, the types that uh, are very likely to lend themselves to 5-4 decisions. Almost uh, out of time here, but Today, what did the court duck today? So it, 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 it's actually, duck may have been the, the, the wrong word to use. They, okay. they did, they, they did or there, was, there was a voting uh, case that they, they, they refused to take today. Um, there are a couple pending cases, June, that are very interesting, one involving uh, Medicaid funding for, for Planned Parenthood, one involving a 40-foot cross as a war memorial in, in outside Washington here, where the court has just not said whether it's going to take the case. They may take them eventually, but so far they're holding off. All right, thanks so much much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.